Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 231 being recorded on Thursday, July 30th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are continuing our, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see me, summer of awesome guest. And we're really excited to welcome to the show, Robbie Kelman Baxter. Robbie has a ton of experience working in the trenches at subscription companies and has leveraged those experiences to write two great books that we strongly recommend. The first was published in 2015 called The Membership Economy. And then she has a new book that's hot off the presses. Uh, came out in March, so good timing with COVID, I guess. Um, uh, and that's called The Forever Transaction. Welcome to the Jason Scott Show, Robbie. Thanks so much for having me. Robbie, we are thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, as you know, it's a little bit of a tradition on the show. We like to get to know a little bit about the guests. Uh, Scott obviously already mentioned your books, but can you give us a, a little bit of background about how um, you sort of got into the world of marketing and subscriptions? Yeah, well, it. I guess it. You know, I, I've I've been in marketing for most of my career, but um, my my consulting in the subscription world, and I was a product manager uh, for for about five years after business school, and then I got laid off when I was on maternity leave with my second child, and I decided during that time that I need to be uh, independent and able to manage my own career and my own income as a consultant. And very soon after that, I realized that if you want to thrive as a consultant, you really need to have an area of expertise. So I was trying to figure out what is big enough that it could and juicy enough that I could be interested in it for a long time and it would be valuable to people, but also narrow enough that I could credibly uh, say I was an expert. And then my, I think it was my fifth client, you know, the first four clients, I was really just trying to pay the mortgage and provide some value. Um, but the fifth client was Netflix. And I just fell in love with the business model. Um, I'd already fallen in love as a consumer. I loved three out at a time, which it was back in the day. Um, but as a, as a business person, I loved the recurring revenue and the focus on the long-term relationship with the customer. And that's really where I got interested in, you know, what I've come to call the membership economy. Yeah. I understand that investors have loved the recurring business model of Netflix as well. Yeah, everybody loves the recurring revenue. You know, the, the valuations are, are um, you know, whatever, five to seven X uh, what what their transactional uh, episodic counterparts get, um, which is pretty much making every business interested in in subscriptions. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like it was already hot pre pandemic. And then if anything, the pandemic has only accelerated that conversation. Uh, I know Scott's eager to jump in to Netflix, but I, I do want to just say that that seemed like super morally dubious to lay you off while you're on maternity leave and legally perilous, I would imagine. But I'm, <laughs> I'm glad it had a, a, such a good outcome, though. So, so interestingly, or, you know, at the time, very disappointingly, it's completely legal if there are other people who are being in, in a group layoff, in a mass layoff, if there are other people laid, being laid off who are not pregnant or just coming back from maternity leave. And there are also people who are pregnant or on maternity leave who are not laid off, then they're completely good. It's it's only if the only people being laid off are the ones with the big dollies. It, yeah, fair, <laughs> fair enough. It's crazy because I've done some studies and it turns out uh, 100% of people have a mom. So it seems weird that we wouldn't treat them like <laughs> Uh, but Scott, did you have a, a, a Netflix specific question? Yeah. Give us a time frame on Netflix. Was this kind of when they were moving from DVD to streaming or were they well into no. streaming when you were there? It was before both of those things. It was oh. when they were three DVDs out at a time and, uh, other parts, I was in the, working in the, in the marketing organization under Leslie Kilgore and, and Jesse Tights Becker, um, but this, you know, it often other parts of the organization, they were thinking about what was going to come next and how could they continue to be relevant and provide, you know, when I think about what Netflix does, it's, you know, 
a large selection of professionally created content delivered with cost certainty in the most efficient way possible. So at that time, it was three DVDs out at a time being the most efficient way possible. Um, But they were already looking at what is the next most efficient way possible going to be. So streaming and downloading and, you know, going through consoles versus going through your phone and all of that. They were thinking about it. But when I was first working with them, this is 2002, 2003, um, they were a three DVD out at a time organization. Wow. And for our Gen Z listeners, uh, DVDs were these plastic circles that had a movie on them and you could actually put it in a machine and watch it. They were amazing. And they came in the mail, not not email, but actual mail in a mailbox. Yeah, snail mail. Very exciting. Do you have any fun Reed Hastings uh, stories you can share with us? <laughs> well, you know, he, I didn't work with with him. I mostly worked with with Leslie and and, and Jesse. Um, but the thing that I remember the most about that company was how incredibly focused they were on what they did and how not interested they were in all the shiny objects going on around them. Um, so, you know, people would constantly be, you know, I was in that working with acquisitions, you know, so how do we acquire new customers and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff would come in over the transom, you know, Hey, we want to give away Netflix for free to, you know, when you buy a puppy or we want to, <laughs> you know, like, a, you know, it's whatever, you know, anyway, everybody wanted to kind of get in on it. And they were so focused on, is that the kind of customer that's going to get value out of Netflix? Because if not, we're not interested. And that's really what has, you know, one of the things that's really stuck with me over time is how, how focused they were so narrowly on, you know, they weren't, they weren't three game video games out at a time. It wasn't, you know, getting the most new subscribers. It was about finding those people that were going to get value and stay for a long time. Hmm, Very cool. Yeah. So we, we thought we would try to break this up into kind of two parts, um, the, we wanted to talk about a lot of the concepts in the books and then use the second half to really kind of dive into some examples. So um, one of the things, uh, and I just finished both books and I kind of read them together. And even though you wrote them kind of in a five-year uh, separation there, they, they really kind of hang together really well. Feels I'm a Star Wars fan, so it feels like maybe you're working on a trilogy. I don't want to I don't hold your feet to the fire on that, but um, so so let's say uh, there's listeners out there that haven't read the books. How would you say you know that they should approach them, and how do they kind of fit together? Yeah, so I, I think of the membership economy as the why, and the forever transaction as the how. So when I wrote the membership economy, a lot of people still didn't think that subscription was relevant to their business, and so I. I wrote the membership economy to say this is a massive transformation that is really powerful and positive for a lot of organizations of all shapes and sizes. And you, you know, business leader, organization leader, entrepreneur should consider it no matter where you are in your business cycle. And here's why. And then five years later, I don't have to explain to anybody the power of recurring revenue. Um, but what what people are saying now is we tried it and it didn't work, or we're trying it and we're running into this problem, or it used to work and now we're running into this new challenge, or we're thinking about it, but we're not sure where to start. And so the forever transaction breaks down, you know, how to launch a new business with a subscription component or a membership mindset, how to how to scale that business once you have product market fit. And then how to maintain a leadership position in a kind of steady state, mature business that uses subscription or membership. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm struggling because I'm trying to go back in time to 2015 and think about what the climate was like then. But in COVID, it feels like I've spent five years in the last three months. So I'm, my, my brain is a little muddled. Uh, but if I have this right, like, in 2015, there were a lot of trendy new businesses that had a, a subscription model as a core component. So I'm I'm feeling like the meal kits were really taking off. Like that might have been the meal the kits were new. Yeah, um, Dollar Shave Club was the big one. Yeah, um, when when I was launching the book, um, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if it made it into the book or or not. But that was a bit, you know billion dollar acquisition by Unilever, and a real, you know, people were really starting to say, wow, look at that. It can work in consumer products and in packaged goods. And um, that was, you know, so it was starting, you know, people were starting to think about it. Yep. Um, 
but most large organizations weren't using, you know, it wasn't a core part of the strategy. Um, and there were a lot of businesses that, you know, weren't, weren't really thinking about it at all yet. And then when you, when you look back on it, um, are organizations still missing something or does pretty much everyone have religion? Because, you know, obviously Unilever had to buy Dollar Shave Club to get this and P and G I think has taken several runs at this. I don't know if they've gotten a lot of traction with, with things, but yeah, it's, I mean, I think that the, the problems that are like, so right now I think they've got religion to the extent that they're like, that most people would say subscription, you know, recurring revenue is something we want and we value getting closer, going direct to our, to our customers is something that we value. Um, we want to do this, but I think a lot of organizations still think that they can just slap subscription pricing on whatever products and services they already have and call it a subscription. And and I feel like subscription is a pricing tactic. It's not by itself a strategy. And I think where organizations are still missing the boat is that they don't understand how it's going to change, not just marketing where you're like on the pricing and packaging side, but the product itself and the way you sell and support that product. And then, of course, the way you recognize the revenue on the finance side. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, it's easy to say, but then like, you know, how are you going to do, if you haven't had any direct relationship, how are you going to do just the pricing, just the hitting the credit card every 30 days and all, all, all those things that kind of come along with it? Yeah. There's a lot of tactical stuff. You, know, you need new systems, new processes. You also need a different mindset because in, in product centric businesses, you know, everything leads up and culminates in the moment of transaction, right? You, you, you know, awareness, trial, transaction. And then you go out and get another one or try to lure that person back. And in a subscription model, that moment of transaction is the starting line, not the finish line. And so everybody's role changes. It's easier in a lot of cases to sell a subscription, to, to acquire a new subscriber, because often the price is lower um, and the commitment is lower. Uh, but it's easier for them to leave. So you have to invest more in engagement and retention. If I, if I go buy a car, um, if I buy a Lamborghini and I roll it off the showroom floor after giving them a check for the full amount and I keep the car in first gear and I say, this is a terrible car. It doesn't go fast at all. That's my problem, not the Lamborghini dealer's problem. If I'm subscribing to that car and keeping it in first gear, right? And I say, this is a terrible car. I'm going to cancel my subscription. So suddenly the responsibility for engagement and usage and realizing the value goes to the organization and away from the customer. Seems like most people, uh, the way they stop from you uh, ending your subscription is just to hide from you. So uh, I don't yes. know if that's the right thing. Hiding the cancel button. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Call us. And then you're like, you know, six hours later, you still are, you know, they're trying to upsell you. Call us, call us on Tuesday. Um, mail us a letter. <laughs> Facts, a fax, yeah. Yeah, right. Send us a fax. It's it's very. I mean, I'm I'm very anti hiding the cancel button. There's actually a lot of subscription. You know, I of course I'm involved in a lot of you know subscription events and subscription shows and you know uh, groups of CEOs of subscription businesses talking about best practices. And often I hear them bragging about how they've increased lifetime customer value, which of course is the key metric for any subscription. They say we've we increased it by X percent in effect by hiding the cancel button, by changing the user interface for cancellation so that it's got more, putting more friction into cancellation. And to me, first of all, I feel like although that's legal and allowed, it's unethical. And um, who wants to be in the business of making money because your customer couldn't figure out how to get away from you? And um, it also, in the long term, I think it really has a negative impact on the, the brand equity on the trust that that customer has and the way that they talk about that company to their, to their network. Yeah. You know, it is, so it is, I mean, it's a challenge because it, it's such a horrible customer experience and there's all these reasons not to do it. And in long-term equity, customer trust is so valuable. Like there's a, there's a bunch of rational reasons to argue not to do it. Unfortunately, like there is an evil argument to do it that the, Customers that want to cancel are the least likely to come back and 
And so, you know, do we really care about creating a, a horribly negative experience for that particular cohort because they're the the least important for us to cater to? Uh, I will say one thing, though. It actually is start the the laws are starting to become more dubious. So there is now a California law that went into effect last year uh, for digital subscriptions that say, and it's there's a lot of nuance, but essentially it says if you offer a digital way to subscribe to a service, you must offer an equivalent digital way to unsubscribe. So, you know, a common practice is one click subscribe and then you have to call and wait in a, on a phone queue for half an hour to cancel. And in California, that's now actually illegal. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've had, I've had several conversations with, um, the woman who is responsible for suing, um, unethical subscription companies for the FTC, uh, Leslie Fair, what a good name for, and you know, what she, what she said is, you know, we're not, you know, all the questions, you know, I, I've spoken with her at, at some, at some conferences and, you know, she gets a lot of questions like, you know, what is the minimum font size for the fine print? And is it okay to go silver on gray with, you know, the, the font being in silver on a background of gray or what shade of grade is allowed or how many gradients of difference is the minimum? And, you know, she always says, she's like, we're not going to tell you exactly how to do it, but the goal is to be fair to the customer. The customer needs to know what they're getting into. They know what they're going to, they need to know what they're going to be charged and they need to know how they can break off this contract if they decide they no longer want to be a part of it. And yet organizations continue to be bad actors. Um, I think one, one really interesting thing that I've noticed, you know, in working with a lot of different companies is that companies that are focused on legacy or that are focused on the long term, such as family-owned businesses or closely held businesses, often take more of a long-term approach than businesses that have leadership being evaluated on a, you know quarterly deliverables with a much shorter time horizon. The the behavior towards their customers is very different. Yeah, that that makes total sense. Um, so. I definitely mirror your experience. I could totally see back in 2015 that there was an interesting conversation to be had about should you even have a, a membership program and what would that look like? But but per your experience, what that meant to a lot of people is let's just find a way to recurring charge to the credit card and recurring ship and not think about the customer experience of membership or the value prop in a different way or all, all of these different things that people are doing wrong. And that's why it makes perfect sense to me that five years later, you would have to write the how book to sort of correct all those errors. Is that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's doing it now. Um, and they're, they're bumping into these, these problems. I mean, one example, you know, if you look at dollar shave club, which was of course a big deal in 2015, um, and what um, Gillette did uh, in kind of in response, and you see how if you're a consumer product, and I don't mean to pick on them, but, you know, you look at a consumer product packaged goods company um, where they're used to shipping things on pallets, right, and optimizing for, you know, distribution on trucks to warehouses, um, and then suddenly they're sending it to consumers, right? You know, even if they get the package to you, the package, you know, it's 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 packaged like a delivery to a warehouse. It's not beautiful and fun and, and frankly, easy to open. And also, in order to have simple pricing for a consumer, which is what is really, in my opinion, is really critical to a successful subscription, you have to have some risk on the side of the company because, you know, your shipping costs are going to vary depending on where you're sending it to and um, what the person actually needs and how frequently they need replenishment is going to change. And so they ended up having a very complex solution, not being able to handle returns very well, not being able to handle changes in the order very well because they just weren't set up for it. And those are all the elements. It's not just about you know, sending the razors directly to the person or having a clever ad about subscription. It's about the whole supply chain um, and the way that the product is supported as well. Yeah. And you know what else I've found? The You alluded to this earlier, but the your mindset, you are a different company when you're selling that membership than you are when you're selling the, the one-time use widget. Like it's all, uh, the analogy I make sometimes is, uh, 
when you're selling a big expensive thing, you have to decide really whether you're going to be in the leasing business or the selling business and do one or the other. It's kind of hard to, to do both. And so I think of like, there are a lot of coffee companies that launch subscription services and the primary value prop was always, uh, we'll ship you the coffee this, the same day we roast it. In fact, Walmart just rolled that out of all people. And I used to always chuckle because you'd go to the website and they both are trying to sell the coffee as a brand and tell you to go buy it from the store where it's been sitting on the shelf for two weeks. And then, like, you know, 20 pixels lower on the screen, they're talking about how coffee sucks unless you get it the day it's roasted and you should subscribe. And it, it just it feels like yeah. you need to make one of those value props or the other. But, like, you, you can't put those two things side by side because they're at cross purposes. Yeah, exactly. And and it's so hard for organizations because a lot of them are trying to, well, either they're trying to capture both values um, or they're trying to transition. And, and it's a very scary thing when you have a successful business to move to subscription because you risk cannibalization. You risk that, you know, losing the revenue you have from your best customers. Um, so like, let's say that you have, um, like, let's say that you're a video game company and you have games that you sell for $60 a piece. Most of your customers buy one game. Um, you have their 60 bucks. The, the, if the only people who go to your hundred dollar a year subscription are the people that are buying two games a year already, you're going to lose money on that transition. Um, but if you keep the, you know, if you keep the two in parallel, um, then you have to make a case that the experience of buying the game outright is no better or worse than subscribing, which of course it's going to be different. So one of them is probably going to be better. Um, like with the coffee example. So it is really tricky to make that transition, especially if you already, like a lot of big companies now, if you already are really good at the transactional side and generate real revenue, it's very hard to to kind of navigate that transformation. For sure. Uh, I do want to get slightly back on track with the book. So uh, I did get to uh, also read Forever Transaction. And you there's three main sections of the book, launch, scale, and lead. Um, And I'll confess, I did not read um, the uh, membership economy when it came out, but I'm imagining a a lot of the topics in launch feel like they might be updated versions of the – the why a little bit versus scale and lead being the the how is uh is that true like like did some of the 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 whys change and did you feel like you needed to update those um you know or am i you it's totally fine to say i'm wrong too by the way yeah well i mean it's, it's interesting i'm, I'm sorry, sort of thinking it's, it's an interesting yeah. thing i think you know and I, I, when i was writing the book i was very worried that i was going to be regurgitating what i'd said in the first book and you know i really wanted it to be different I think that there is there is there's a couple of chapters devoted to the why at the beginning because I want the book to stand on its own. Um, but pretty quickly you get into I did not get into the nitty gritty of how do you launch your subscription business, which is actually for a lot of organizations that's the hardest part. Like, okay, we have this vision that we're going to be this ecosystem for for whatever it is. You know, this is going to be the place where all you know, ad agencies gather and share best practices and, you know, people manage their careers here and they get training and education and access to products and services and blah, blah, blah. But today, what are we going to offer? Because how do we get there? And um, so that launch section, I really had to break it down into what do you do if you're launching as an entrepreneur, where this is your the beginning of your business? And what do you do if you actually have a going concern, as we just talked about, how do you how do you start and not distract the rest of the organization but quickly but but also change the culture as that subscription begins to grow yeah how do one of the cultural things i imagine that's just we see this in the world of omnichannel is just sales compensation right you yeah. know, sales execs usually paid on the full value of a deal in an upfront and now you've got this subscription um any best practices of how to get the sales work kind of aligned? Yeah, it's 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 really hard because um, some in some cases, I mean, that, especially like on let's say the B two B side, um, you know, it might take a different kind. You know, a, a, a lot of times a salesperson is um, a little bit of a big game hunter, right? And they go out and they find the woolly mammoth and they, you know, it's hard to kill and they bring it back to the to the cave and they tell the rest of the the village, like you guys deal with the carcass. I'm going to go out and get another woolly mammoth. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not 
the subscription model. The subscription model is much more of a farming method where that initial acquisition is not that hard. Um, but engaging and expanding the relationship over time is different. So I think the first thing that an organization needs to do is to recognize that it's a very different model, you know, and that success, as you pointed out, is not just based on that moment of transaction, but it's based on the longer term um, result with that account. Um, and then to think about, you know, what does that mean for our existing sales team? Do we have the right people? And how do we transition them, if so, to this different model and different metrics? Because um, I think salespeople are, are very driven. They're very practical, um, rational people. If you, you know, if you aim them in a certain direction and say, this is what we want, and this is what we're going to pay you for, that's what they do. But I think in some cases, you might even need a different kind of person and, you know, inside sales, especially right now in COVID, um, you know, a lot of businesses are realizing that they can actually do a lot of their sales without an outside sales team. With, yeah. with everybody actually being, you know, remote and selling with a lighter touch. It's, it's a bad time to be a mammoth hunter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. S- Scott and I are actually old enough that we remember when people used to just bring woolly mammoths back to the cave. So those were, those were good times. <laughs> those too. were the days. Yep. <laughs> the, uh, a lot of it reminds me of software as a service. We've had to do the same thing in the software world years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's kind of interesting that the, the CPG world and all the other things are coming that way. So then the second part of the book is scale. Um, maybe, you know, um, obviously we want to whet people's appetite. W- what are some of the interesting techniques for scaling these models? Yeah. So, so there's a bunch of things. So there's the, the infrastructure component where you have to actually, you know, in a lot of cases, think of different technology um, to, to solve these problems. You know, you're, you're much more interested in engagement, which, you know, a lot of companies don't track at all. Like most CPGs have no idea if I'm, using the same toothbrush for a year or a month, um, how hard I brush, how long I brush, what kind of brush I need. Um, so they have to, you know, often have the technology to do a better job of tracking things differently. Um, Oral-B is a great example of that. They have a, an app that links to their uh, their electric toothbrush, which I enjoy using. Um, so, so that's kind of a, one part is sort of thinking about what kind of technology and what kind of metrics do you need to track. And I think the other big thing is changing the culture. You've, you've alluded to this, but I think this is a really big challenge in the scaling piece where you say, okay, so the way we sell is different. The way we support is different. It's kind of a move, you know, in the, in the SaaS world, you know, the, that move from technical support to customer success is a very big change in the way the organization thinks about how they serve their existing customers. And, you know, changing that culture to be focused on the customer's long-term well-being and engagement is, uh, you know, a pretty big process and something that I go into a lot of detail on in that second part of the book. Uh, that's very clear, cool. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and then the third section of the book, uh, lead, you talk about a lot of things that feel like they're very much in vogue right now, like how you keep that leadership position as a membership service. And so, you you know, how do you deal with things like churn and subscription fatigue? Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the key key themes in lead? Yeah. So so the, the companies, when I, when I was writing lead, the, the companies I was really thinking a lot about are the news organizations, the gyms, the professional associations, these organizations that have been membership oriented for a long time that are actually quite familiar with subscription. Um, But they're finding in many cases, like what I hear them saying over and over again is young people aren't joiners. Young people aren't readers. Young people don't value loyalty. And what I was seeing was not that young people were any different than, than people have always been, but young people are making that decision for where they want to have a forever transaction to solve that long-term problem with fresh eyes. And when they looked at the opportunities that they had to solve that problem, whether it's where do I go for my professional development and my uh, professional network, or where do I... Um, get information of what's going on in the outside world so I can better understand my own world and make better decisions, which is kind of the forever promise of news, or what is the best way for me to get and stay fit, um, which is kind of the world of gyms. Um, These young people or these new buyers were looking at, you know, 
the gyms and the associations and the newspapers. And they were like, well, that's not really the best way, given what else is available for me to solve those problems. You know, I can look at Twitter for my news or, and get, you know, user generated content that's much more current and timely, or, you know, I can get it for free or I can go to CrossFit instead of a traditional gym and have much better community and engagement. And so I think at that, at that lead phase, I think it's really important for organizations to balance um, the way they focus on existing members and the way that they focus on tomorrow's members and looking at acquisition. And, you know, usually these older organizations are really good at engagement and retention, and they're not good at acquisition. Whereas I think in those first two phases, you know, the risk is often that they're really good at acquisition and then they have a leaky bucket. Um, so the, the issues that I see there um, in that lead phase are around um, staying relevant. So iterating on their offering to stay relevant and to keep that forever promise true the way that Netflix has with, you know, once it was three DVDs at a time today, it's streaming, but the promise is still the same. And um, the other thing that happens that we've talked about a little bit is that in this phase, it's very tempting to take advantage of the trusted relationships to hit a short-term number, right? So I'll hear organizations saying, well, we can just throw in a small fee or we can just not improve the product this year because our members are so loyal and they're not looking at alternatives. So they're not going to go anywhere, even if we don't give them great value this year. (laughs) And that'll help us hit our number. Um, and so, so those are some of the issues that, you know, by focusing on today's members and by taking them for granted, you often, you know, neglect tomorrow's business. Yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky. Um, interesting. So, uh, so that's super helpful. And then if, if listeners want more, then they've got to go get the book, which we strongly recommend. Let's, uh, let's talk about some company examples now that we've kind of got the framework in place. Uh, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about Amazon. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, as you've been talking about this, I, it, my mind always goes to Prime. And, you know, I think Jeff Bezos said something like you'd have to be, um, you know, almost like irresponsible not to subscribe to Prime. They just want to pack so much value into, into the program. How, how do you view Prime and is it, is it kind of the holy grail of these things or can you point to something you think they've, they could have done better or where, where do you fall on the, the Prime world? Um, I, I think they've been really, they're a great example of this forever promise. And um, I, I use them often as an example because, you know, today, you know, they've packed so much value into it. You know, you, you go there for, you know, certainly for the free shipping, but also for the, the video content, the audio content and the, you know, all of the other services that they provide. But if you remember, you know, the, the forever promise, I think of Amazon is, you know, to remove all friction from all purchases, right? That's kind of, you know, and I wonder, I, sometimes in Jeff Bezos's world, if it's like, you know, I just think of a product I need and it magically appears and I say, no, no, that's not what I meant. And it disappears in a puff of smoke. Uh, and I think you know, they but, actually have a patent on that. <laughs> and genie. The, 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 you know, the Amazon genie, um, <laughs> like Siri, uh, but, um, you know, the thing that, that I think is, is really interesting to remember is that when they started, cause this gets back to that, you know, that launch phase, when they started, all they did was deliver books. They made it easier for you to get the book you wanted. Um, but you had to actually wait a long time for the book and the shipping was not free. So, you know, they, they've layered in more and more value, um, over time to, to better deliver on that promise of removing all friction from all buying. And so I think it's actually a really good example. And the other thing that's sort of interesting about it, people often struggle with pricing of subscription. And something that's interesting about Amazon is that most people, when I've tested them, they don't even know how much they pay exactly. Now, I think it's, is it 99 or 109 or 89 or 129? I, I don't, I don't really remember. And that's because, you know, as you pointed out, they've packed so much value in that it's, they've really made Amazon a habit for people, that it's the first place they go when they need to buy something. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting there. So the, uh, you may not be familiar with them, but there is a, a prognosticator in our industry. He's actually an idol of Scott's, uh, a professor at NYU, uh, Scott Galloway. Galloway. Exactly. I'm teasing. Uh, Scott, (laughs) I know you're listening. Uh, we're just, we're just making fun of you. Um, the, 
Scott is the bane of my existence for several reasons, but one is because I have a lot of clients that are um, zealous followers of Scott. And uh, so one of the, the themes that Scott like really picked up on and started hitting hard a couple of years ago uh, was this idea uh, that he coined of a rundle, which is a recurring revenue bundle. Um, and so I then have to go to all these retailers and sit in on the rundle meeting where they're talking about like, what's our rundle? What's our um, sort of recurring revenue business that we could add on onto our thing? Like, I, I'm kind of curious, like, uh, do you agree with him? And, and was that an exciting thing that brought attention to it? Or is it oversimplifying to sort of just just think of it in, in in terms of the revenue and not really the product and the experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea is a good one and it's a very catchy term, you know, rundle. <laughs> I like that. Um, but I but I think I mean a couple things. Uh, I think that org- a lot of organizations don't they they're, they over focus on the benefits to themselves. Um, in terms of, you know, if we do this, we get bigger transaction size, uh, we get more power, we disintermediate all these other third parties, uh, we get recurring revenue. And, and I don't hear enough about why a customer would prefer a rundle. Um, that's, that's sort of the first, the first issue is, you know, I think a lot of organizations don't think about that very hard at all. Why would I rather subscribe to access a bundle of benefits or a bundle of products? The other thing that happens a lot is that, you know, everybody loves this idea of a subscription box um, that's around discovery versus um, replenishment. And most people um, get subscription fatigue from discovery boxes. They're overwhelmed. Like how many, how many new snack bars can I try? How many different lipsticks can I own? Um, it's a very, very small audience of people that is going to want new products and exciting new things in a category every single month. Uh, they often just want to, re- you know, kind of refresh and then go back to their habits. And so it's actually pretty hard to build a rundle um, that's not necessarily around around replenishment of of a habit um, that, that consumers are are going to want for more than let's say you know six or seven months. It's funny because even my dog MacGyver is exhausted from his bark box. Oh, <laughs> I know. You would think of anything yeah. that like well, a dog would be happy to get a treat every month, but yeah, but like, and then you have what ends up happening, right? Is and I don't know if this is your your case is that you have this pile of like doggy treats and doggy toys and you're like but then the next one came and we haven't even used up the last yeah. one yeah it's the same thing with those those uh, meal kit ingredients it's 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 funny because the all of those services were hugely in vogue and many of them are still around but the common denominator that they all have is they they have a non-recurring option right like just order the fix when you want it instead of getting a stitch fix every month or you know birchbox on demand or you know meal kits when you want it like it feels like per your point none of them could survive exclusively by by having the 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 periodic shipment um i do want to make one thing clear uh, i i feel like there could be no argument scott has uh scott wingo our scott has much better hair than scott galloway i'm just saying it's a low bar <laughs> the uh <laughs> i'm uh, uh i'm curious to get your opinions and this is kind of in the free consulting uh bucket so uh you know, do with it what you will uh, but i'm i'm neck deep in kind of a digital services um startup and we've tried some subscriptions it's been a little bit of a challenge um, and i'm wondering have you seen any best practice at practices as it relates to services um yeah i mean there's there's a, f- a few different things um one of them is uh to to balance well so so you can have a subscription as a component of your business model or it can be the whole thing right so that i think is is the first thing that i've that i've seen with a lot of businesses so um you know you can say like like for example bain the consulting firm has their net promoter uh what is it the net promoter system loyalty forum mm-hmm. which is a subscription um but then there's also you know, they're big transactions, they're big, they're big events. Um, and a lot of organizations kind of give you a choice, a hybrid. Um, if it's all digital services and there's no human component and it's your primary revenue generator, I think things that I'd be focused on, one is the onboarding of new members. 
so that they adopt the habits that are going to make them stay um, and that are going to expand the relationship. So a lot of, you know, I feel like there's a lot of businesses where there's almost like a failure to launch after they buy the digital service. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's bought, they don't, they don't like, they either walk into the lobby of the party and they're like, this isn't very fun. And then they leave before they even get into the room where the actual party is happening. And you're like, wait, you didn't even see all the value. Like you didn't even see it because they couldn't find their way to the value. Um, Or they go into the room and they don't feel welcome or they don't understand how to enjoy it. And so they leave before they've ever had the ability to make it into a habit. And so I think organizations under invest in onboarding, both in the um, the marketing around it, but also in the product itself. I think that's probably the number one mis- like kind of mistake or or missed opportunity that I see. Mm, okay. Yeah. So so a good example is, um, and I'll pick one away from me is um, home cleaning. So there's. Uh, it's companies like Handy and all these folks, and um, they'll almost like force you into a subscription and then you, you can't really sample. And I've always felt like that feels weird, right? Because now you're forcing me into this just to get one house cleaning now and experience your service. I have to feel like I'm committed and cancel. Um, so that doesn't feel yeah. right. Uh, it almost seems like what you want to do is get people, you know, uh, trying the service and then identify a cohort that you think uh, would be likely to subscribe to and then offer a subscription? Is that kind of what you think would be the best practice? Yeah. Well, so for the example of Handy, um, you know, I think about, you know, free trial versus freemium versus nothing for free. Mm -hmm. So a, a free trial is great if they don't understand what the value is or they don't believe it's as good as you say. And so if you are trying handy, you're like, oh, I don't know if it's as good as me cleaning the house myself or as good as a cleaning person or system we have now, you want to be able to try it. Um, so that, you know, if, if they don't have the kind of brand that's trusted or you don't either you don't believe it's as good as they say it is or you don't really understand what they're going to do or what it's going to feel like, you need to have an opportunity to get a trial um, free or or a paid trial, um, but that, you know, kind of one, one opportunity or a money back guarantee or an ability to try it once and then cancel. Um, I think that what is good though about organizations that have discipline is they say, look, we're opted, let's just say for this, you know, I don't know a lot about handy, but that, you know, people who only use us periodically, like coming into a house that isn't cleaned by us every week could be a disaster and much more expensive to clean. But we know if we come every week, that we can manage our costs. Um, and we also know that the kind of people who take care of their homes should be cleaning their house on a regular cadence. So we don't really want to be in the business of one-time cleaning. Um, so they might say you get one try, one chance to buy it outright, and then you go to our subscription. Um, and they're going to be leaving money on the table for sure, because there's all kinds of scenarios where you need a cleaning occasionally. Um, but they might say that's not what we do. Just like Netflix said, you know, we don't do video games, even though they're exactly the same size as the other discs, and we don't let you buy the discs. That's just not what we do. It's too many different business models. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Although in my mind, the even the business model issues aside, it, it just does feel like uh, getting a customer to sign up for a subscription is a higher bar than getting customers to buy something once and so it feels like your marketing has to be different and when you ask like i mean uh, the corny analogy i always use is dating like you know asking someone to buy your product is like asking them to go on a date with you but asking them to subscribe to your product is like asking them to marry you yeah yeah absolutely um Um, but 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 in other cases you know you want to make the problem go away right you know i want my house to always be clean yeah right i I don't want it to so, so yeah, it is, it's a higher, it's a higher bar. And one of the challenges, you know, when I, when I work with an organization and they're saying our subscription isn't working, we kind of, we do a diagnostic to look at where is the problem is the problem that the, the friction is too high to get someone to sign up. Like it's too much risk to commit to this new way of doing things. Or is the problem that once they sign up, they stay for a little while and they say, I'm exhausted from this, like with the bark box. Um, or is the problem that they come in and they're like, this seems great, but I don't know why I'm not getting any value. Um, so, so all of those, you know, those are all kind of different, different scenarios. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to get your opinion on one that's kind of front and center in our industry right now. So obviously we've talked a lot about Prime, and it seems like an amazing example. In in retail, there's an even older example. I think uh, uh, Price Club, which became Costco, started doing memberships in like 1976, and that's been a phenomenally successful model. Um, so in the last couple of months, there have been a number of articles that say that Walmart is about to launch a membership pl- program. And I think uh, Jason Delray wrote an article that it was going to be called Walmart Plus. And it's I've been really interested to follow. No, like, hey, as far as I know, Walmart hasn't confirmed any of this, and we don't really know what's what Walmart is or isn't going to do. But there's been a lot of media attention to what they might do and whether that's a good idea or not. And it seems like it falls in two camps. There's a bunch of people that are like, oh, this is ridiculous. This is going to be a bad imitation of Prime with fewer products and slower shipping. And it's it, it's just going to be a bad look that it's this this inferior version of Prime. Um, and then a lot of other like seemingly equally smart people have, have felt like, oh, my gosh, super smart for Walmart to engage – their their most valuable cohort and you know start generating this this recurring revenue and and you know getting becoming more sticky with customers in the same way that that a Costco or a Prime is like do you um I I know we can't know because we don't know what Walmart's offer really is or how they're going to execute it yet but do you I mean are both of those potential outcomes does it like are you are you happy to see the, uh, them seemingly move in this direction yeah. I mean, what I've been waiting for to see from sort of two things with Walmart. One of them is they've, they've tried lots of other things um, to compete against Amazon. They've offered some different Me Too features. Um, they've offered some some benefits for membership and engagement, um, but they haven't really embraced. First of all, they haven't really embraced it as as core. And the other thing is they haven't really tapped into what makes them different from Amazon, their unique strengths, which is, you know, of course, their their physical footprint of being, I don't know what they say, like within 10 miles of 90% of Americans or something yeah, like you, that. Yeah, you have it exactly right. Yeah. So I think... Um, I think that, you know, you know, and again, all of this is kind of rumor and, and um, conjecture, but it seems like some of the benefits that they're offering, you know, combining the priority slots for curbside pickup, um, two hour delivery to your home, um, uh, and, and gas, right? With fuel for your car, uh, discounts on fuel. Those are pretty um, impressive headliner benefits that by themselves, you know, a lot of times with these kinds of bundled um, benefits, a lot of times what people do is they do the math in their head, right? Like a lot of people did with Amazon Prime, right? Like how many, how many, how much free ship, how much do I spend on shipping before Amazon Prime pays for itself? Which, you know, back in the early days is kind of how I think a lot of people thought about it. And then Amazon layered in so much value that you're like, well, I would never leave now. And it's not just about the shipping. Um, I think Walmart, could be doing that with even just, you know, the discount on fuel. So I think, you know, and you're starting to see that they're able to do some things that would be much harder for Amazon to do just because of their, their physical footprint. So I'm, I'm optimistic. This feels like a better, a better offering than, than what they've done in the past. Very cool. How do one of the things that's kind of interesting is, so you kind of have loyalty and then subscription kind of bundled together. How, how do you think about the, those and how they fit into this, this whole framework? So, so loyalty programs, you know, was, I always thought of that as kind of the gateway to, to membership. Um, and it was a way for very transactional businesses, very episodic businesses to smooth out the relationship with their customers, to make it e- easier to get them to return. And most of them did it, I think, in a pretty clunky way, which was basically giving them, um, you know, paying them for the frequency and depth of their purchases. So it almost is, you know, the, the traditional loyalty programs like, you know, mileage or, or you know, the programs that hospitality industry has, or even the old punch cards is basically, you spend this much with us, and we give you something with a real financial value in return. And that almost feels like a financial transaction rather than really being about loyalty. I don't necessarily feel loyal to United, but I'd be stupid not to get the free trips since I travel so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not it's not really about loyalty or engagement or preference. It's about a real financial 
arrangement. Whereas I think like the Costco example, the price club example, which some people are calling premium loyalty programs now, where you pay to be treated better because the assumption is this is a preferred place where you're going to do a lot of shopping and you want the best possible experience. Uh, it seems like a lot of organizations are moving away from the points-based loyalty programs and toward these premium loyalty programs where you pay up front for a bundle of benefits rather than rather than accruing benefits based on your frequency and depth of purchase. Yeah, it, it seems like if you can make the value proposition and make that sort of premium loyalty work, that it's it's a lot more valuable. I'm curious, like if you have an opinion on like for brands that maybe are only in a position to make that sort of basic transactional loyalty program work, I'm really torn right now because on the one hand, um, I, I keep hearing about loyalty fatigue and everyone's got, got you know, 100 loyalty memberships in their in their um, household and therefore, you know, none of them affect behavior and, and, you know, they're, they're kind of a dime a dozen, but then I keep, I've, I've been watching the space and like, I think this, this month, Wendy's rolled out a, a new points for purchase program and PepsiCo launched a, a, a points for, for a purchase program. So like, despite the fact we're all poo-pooing these like basic frequency programs, it seems like uh, brands are still doing them. With, uh, I'm curious, like, do you think those are working for those brands or do you think it's just just uh, in, uh, an experiment or ill-advised? Uh, I, I don't I mean, I think in, in many cases, it's it's a starting point for an organization to begin building a relationship with their customers. It's a way to start, you know, in a lot of cases, it's just a way to start tracking um, behavior at the unit, at the individual level. Um, and so I, I understand why they would do it. I don't, you know, in terms of driving loyalty, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's the best kind of most sophisticated, newest way to, to drive actual loyalty. Um, you know, it, yeah. in, in contrast to Wendy's, you know, Burger King has a subscription where you get uh, unlimited coffee for $5 a month, which. Yeah, yeah is, that's a new thing, huh? Pan, uh, Panera, Panera doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's is $9 a month because it's better coffee, I guess. Yeah. Side note, they open at like 9 a.m. So I'm not subscribing to any any coffee solution that's not delivering coffee like when I wake up in the morning, yeah. which I wish I woke up at 9 a.m. But that's a uh, th- those days are long gone, I'm afraid. Uh, let me ask you the most personal question of all. So I have a 77 year old mother. Um, last month, she bought herself an Apple TV and miraculously installed it and subscribed to Disney Plus exclusively so she could watch Hamilton. Hamilton. And I'm super fascinated to find out if she's going to keep that subscription for years or if she's canceling it in a month. <laughs> well, so so <laughs> I, have, I have two thoughts. So first of all, I also have a 77-year-old mom and she has dramatically changed all kinds of behaviors during this COVID time and is subscribing to all kinds of new things as a result of this. So this is actually a lot of organizations are having a moment right now where consumers are being forced to rethink their habits and um, find you know new ways of entertainment, new ways to interact with their friends, new ways to stay fit. Um, so it's it's very exciting in the world of subscriptions for me from from that perspective. Um, in terms of Disney Plus and Hamilton, um, what's really interesting? I mean, there's a bunch of interesting things. So first of all, you know. Disney versus Netflix, you know, they have a much more, you know, complex ecosystem of offerings. And so they don't necessarily have to make money on the Disney Plus in the same way that Netflix depends on their subscription revenue. Um, the the Hamilton thing, you know, shutting down the free trial because you know what it tastes like. It tastes like princesses and National Geographic. You don't need to, you don't need a free taste. Um, it tastes like Hamilton. Uh, and you know, I think they were hoping that, you know, and they did see a huge spike in acquisition specifically to get Hamilton. But I've also heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, effectively it's $6.99 to rent Hamilton for the month, which is still a pretty good deal. I don't know if Disney is fine with that. But what has been surprising to me is, you know, if you if you watch Hamilton, the recommendation that they gave at the end of it, the, that, you know, if you liked Hamilton, maybe you'd enjoy The Sound of Music which was sort of like if you've enjoyed watching three hours of, you know, Broadway musical, maybe you'd enjoy another three hours of Broadway musical right on its heels. 
um, was really surprising to me. I expected it's kind um, of an underwhelming AI personalization experience, isn't it? Totally. I was so surprised. And so was Lin-Manuel Miranda, by the way, because he yeah. wrote, you know, he was like, does my dad have the control at Disney? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's sort of crazy. And then the other thing is, um, I haven't gotten a lot of um, emails or in-product engagement from them encouraging me to onboard and explore their offerings in a more sophisticated way, um, which is which makes me think that probably a lot of people that plan to just come in, you know, the idea of having some kind of a teaser to get people in the door is, you know, you come for Hamilton, but you stay for National Geographic or you stay for the princesses. And I don't know if they've gotten enough people to make that leap. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I'm with you, though. The it feels like lack of personalization is a huge miss here. Uh, For example, uh, as regular listeners will know, Scott is the hugest Star Wars fan of all time. So he's been a Disney Plus member from day one and he has no idea that they have Hamilton. Right. And yet. I not bet true. You, not true. I know. I'm teasing <laughs> you. But I'm, I'm just saying like your Disney hasn't told your me. lifetime <laughs> spend on Disney properties. I'm going to guess greatly outweighs your lifetime spend on Broadway properties. Uh, Probably. Yeah. But okay. uh, I like Hamilton. Absolutely. Right. I think I, it's yeah. fun to I go mean, from Hamilton into Mandalorian. I think, Sorry. I, I think didn't. Your I didn't, grandmother should should go that path. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize you were going to get all defensive on the um, you're very cultural. I wasn't trying to imply you weren't. Sorry. Uh, but. <laughs> Yeah, but you could imagine, I mean, there are a lot of Star Wars fans that probably aren't big Broadway musical fans, and yet they're getting the exact same marketing experience for Hamilton as anyone else. Right. Yeah, it's tough when you have limited content. Uh, I know we're up against time, and, and uh, so part of your your gig is you do a lot of consulting with companies on these topics. Uh, maybe leave us with some parting thoughts on common pitfalls you see folks fall into or, or even on the other side of the coin, you know, wins um, for folks that want to get involved in the subscription economy? Yeah. So I think the the one thing that we haven't really talked about a lot is this idea of, um, you know, I think the best subscription businesses start with what I would call a forever promise. What is the long-term impact that you're helping your customer achieve? What is the long-term goal that you're helping them achieve? What is the problem you're helping them to solve that is an ongoing problem? And then to optimize the offering around that problem. So in in your world of of car washes, for example, right? I don't want a faster car wash. I don't, I spoke at the International Car Wash Association last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that sort of shocked me is how often they talked about, you know, this brush takes nine minutes versus that brush, which takes 10 minutes. So, you know, we're going to shave 37 seconds off of the experience when I think what a, what a car wash customer really wants is a clean car. And you know what? I don't want to spend 10 minutes there or nine minutes there or 14 minutes there. I want to not spend any time there and just have my car be clean. Mm-hmm. And did, so did you yeah. mention Spiffy at that show? By chance? Someone did told it. me someone was talking about Spiffy at one of no, the shows. This was, okay. No, right. this was like two years ago. No. Okay. All right. Okay. No, but I will in the future. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's a very different model because you're, you're looking at it, you know, more aligned with how the customer sees it, which is like, I would rather never go to the car wash and just have little elves and fairies come and wash my car while I sleep. I'm going to call it right here. This is the best guest we've ever had, Jason. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow I thought you'd be aligned with that comment. Yeah. No, but I mean, even if it is your idea, it still makes total sense to me that you, you sell the outcome not yeah. the service, right? And, and, that, and the I on, mean, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, the ongoing ahead. outcome, the on, you know, because if, if in, a, in a subscription, it's about, you know, I don't want to have my car be clean and be dirty. I want it clean and dirty. I want to just, I just want to have a clean car. Like what, what do I have to do to just have my car always be clean? What do I have to do to always like in, in the world of, you know, you talked about Stitch Fix or Latote or Rent the Runway. What do I have to do to just always look good, look professional, right? Yeah. That's, that's the promise I want. And the closer those companies can get to, you know, making me always look and feel my best, the more I'm going to be willing to trust them with my credit card. Yeah. And one step up on Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, I just want my wife to be happy. And she's only going to be happy if she has a clean car. She's only going to have a clean car if Scott comes and cleans it every week. <laughs> yes. Right. With, with an espresso. Exactly. So basically, Get Spiffy is selling marital happiness, if you really think about it. Yeah. Definitely. We, we, it's, Definitely. Uh, I often say it's better than a dozen roses. 
<laughs> well, listen, Robbie, this has been fascinating. We could talk about this all week, and I suspect Scott's going to want to do that with you after, after the show. But it has happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, as always, if there are any uh, topics we didn't get to that listeners are, are dying to bring up, feel free to hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. If you enjoyed the show, we sure would appreciate it if you could uh, jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review. We're not even looking for an ongoing financial subscription commitment, just a five-star review. Yeah. And uh, Robbie, uh, really enjoyed having you on. Uh, if folks want to follow you online, do you prefer Twitter, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Insta? Where Where's your, um, where's your I, best I, spot? I'm on all those places, um, but I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, we will uh, put your, your particulars in the show notes. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 